Hello, everyone, and welcome to Songversations, the long waits podcast where we interview songwriters about their methods and approaches to writing songs. I'm Bjorkvin, and I play guitar and sing in The Long Wait. You can visit us at thelongwait.com, our very active social media profiles on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channels that are all under the username Long Wait Music. You can support this podcast and our music in multiple ways, either by becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash thelongwait, using our Amazon affiliate link through thelongwait.com slash Amazon, or sending us a tip through our virtual tip jar at thelongwait.com slash tips. Thank you very much for your support, and now let's get into this week's interview. Today we are here with Ian McFerrin. Uh, welcome on, uh, welcome on the podcast. Songversations, it's called. I love that. I love the name of the show. <laughs> Songversations. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm gonna read a little bit of your bio here. I like the uh, initial quote here from Rudy Humphrey, Americana UK. With the jingle of tambourine, we get a likely candidate for album of the year. Simple as soaked in California sunshine one minute, then deep in the dust bowl the next. It's like a greatest hits of everyone you like. Ian McFerrin's songwriting has been compared to Bob Dylan, John Lennon, and Ryan Adams. Over the course of a decade-long independent music career, he has gained a loyal following and attracted media attention stretching across the Atlantic. He currently tours in support of his eighth studio album, Radio, recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, with Grammy-nominated producer-guitarist Doug Lanceal, who Produced Patty Griffin and John Hyatt. Performance on the album appears on records with Robert Plant, Nora Jones, Elton John, Ray LaMontagne, Steve Earle, Patty Griffin, John Hyatt, Buddy Miller, and Eli Young band, among others. McFerrin performs live with his Seattle-based folky pop Americana band, which includes longtime fiddler cellist Lisa Milner, as well as the soulful bass and drum duo Mo Promancher and Amy Zoe. McFerrin's writing explores musical traditions ranging from rock to gospel, from folky pop to alt-country, Americana, blues, and swing. The quote here at the end is a cool one. The best song on Summer Nights came at me like a hammer blow. I Ain't Dead Yet could easily be a great lost Dylan song from the mid-1960s, or more likely a brand new Justin Towns Earl song. It really is that good. Written by Alan Harrison of the Maverick Magazine in the UK. Well, how you doing, Ian? I'm doing great. Cool. Well, it's good to meet you finally. Well, at least over the internet again. Well, we met. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say, tell the audience that Ian and I actually met uh, once back in 2009. So it's good to talk to you again after six years. <laughs> I was thinking about that. It's been been way too long, you know, and, and we would love to, to get back through and link up with you guys in Tucson again. It's just been a, been a long time. Time flies. Yeah. So we met at Plush that time, which is a Tucson bar and concert venue that's uh, now called Flycatcher. I caught you guys playing in the lobby area that it doesn't really have concerts anymore. But we started chatting in the break and we've kind of been on your email list ever since. And I've kind of kept in touch on Facebook a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's been so long that uh, the, the venue that we met at is now called something else. That, that is, <laughs> that's too long. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing recently when it comes to songwriting or something that you wanted to add maybe to your bio. Well, I guess recently we've just been traveling a lot. I think 
the last five years, it's close to, I think, a thousand shows we played in the last five years. So it's been a lot of road life, a lot of going to new places, going back to places that we've been before. I don't know, I guess in terms of the riding, it's kind of, the road is a good place to absorb new experiences and the conversations you have with people, the things that they share with you, it all kind of percolates around and, and becomes grist for the mill in songwriting. But it's been a lot of focus on I guess what I call the blue collar side of music, which is uh, touring and performing and your instruments as your the tools of your trade, of your craft and just bringing the music to people live to connect them with it. It seems like in this day and age, that's more and more, you know, the best becoming the best way to connect independent music with audience. But at the same time, as you're as you're sort of honing your craft out on the road, you know, on the highways of America, as, as it's been for us, your wheels are always kind of spinning and you're always observing these experiences. And inevitably, if songwriting is your craft, those experiences become songs, even if you're kind of writing the lyrics in your head while you're driving the van, you know, <laughs> which sometimes happens. Yeah, because since as long as I've known of you, you've been you've basically been on tour. So how do you divide your time between all the different aspects of being a touring musician and songwriter? And I guess it just, as you were saying that, it obviously crossed my mind that it's probably a great source of inspiration to always be somewhere new and talking to new people. But does that burn out a little bit? Do you get some burnout from that? Or is it always a, a pool of inspiration for you? Well, I think anything that you do all the time, you know, like, I mean, I think between April and November, we average five or six nights a week playing music and we're playing in different cities every night usually probably averaging 300 miles between shows wow and so anything that you do with that much vigor i guess will have elements that are are very joyful and fulfilling and elements that are just like work you know sometimes you don't feel great or you don't feel like driving 300 miles you don't sometimes feel like setting up the pa <laughs> sometimes in a bar you don't feel like playing 9 to 1 a.m., you know, right. there are elements to it that, you know, maybe playing a two hour house concert is a great joy. And sometimes playing, a, you know, a bar can be a little bit of, you know, can be a little bit of work. But your work is always to break through and connect with people in terms of songwriting and balancing those two lives in this day and age. I think that is a great question how do we find balance you know with so many people not just songwriters and musicians doing the work of you know so many people i mean with technology the sort of the blessing and the curse of it is that we can do so many things and then we end up inevitably having to do many people's jobs all at once so as songwriters today you know the being independent you're you're scheduling your your tours you're you're actively on the road performing those shows you're managing your business, you're writing the songs, you're planning and, and uh, funding and promoting your albums. And so I think the task that you face is how do you be present in all those moments? How do you be equally dedicated to all those aspects of your craft? And songwriting, of course, is the fuel of the whole thing. It's literally the fuel in, in a lot of ways that our entire business is based on. And, you know, you could have a brand new van packed with a PA and great instruments, but you're not going to go anywhere without gasoline, you know, <laughs> and songs are that gasoline. That's what fuels what we do. And we need to continually write new material or I need to continually write me new material that reflects both my unique experience as a, as a human being walking this earth and, and also reflecting experiences that connect with other people. 
and their walk through life. Because I think that's what the listener wants to get out of a song. They want you to highlight those moments that uh, in the busyness of their own lives that they might be missing. And so songwriting is at once an opportunity to be mindful and meditative in the moment and to reconnect with yourself and recenter yourself as a human being, but also a way to, you know, and your great hope is that act of recentering becomes a song that also can be a, a place for other people to connect with their own lives and their own experiences. So you have to find that time. And uh, I guess I, I've been writing a lot more in the winter these past few years, just because those are the, the months that we're not touring as much. And that's mainly a product of snow <laughs> yeah. and mountain passes and mother nature. So, you know, but that's pretty much any time that I have that I can sit with my instrument and connect with I guess my own spirit, that's what I'm trying to do in songwriting, is to reveal what's stirring in my own spirit. I do that work. I mean, that's the work that I'm, I'm most drawn to is songwriting. Cool. That's very inspiring. Very inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like Ram that a, a lot. A little bit rambling. I've been uh, known to ramble, my friend. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the perfect ingredient for a podcast, if you, <laughs> <laughs> you ask me. <laughs> You're on here for a reason, my friend. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about just kind of like the nuts and bolts of songwriting for you so is guitar your main instrument of choice for songwriting or do you dabble in other instruments i play piano as well i, I started out on piano as a kid just kind of self-taught i guess that's why i discovered chord structure and melody was you know the the neat thing about those 88 keys is that all of music theory is just staring at you know out at you from the piano keyboard and so i didn't have formal education as a kid. I, I came from a, a big family and I was right smack in the middle of a large family, but there was a piano in the home. For whatever reason, I just felt a kind of a connection to the instrument and, and I just started making up melodies on there. And I, I started playing guitar when I was, I guess, about 16, 17. At first, I, I, I found it easier to write on guitar than piano, uh, lyrical music. And I think it's just because the guitar the right hand you have you have so much room to create syncopated rhythms and things and it just was easier for me to get the right hand going with that pulse and that rhythm and to then sort of stitch the rhythm and the cadence of the lyrical melody and, and the vocal lines against that guitar rhythm and so something about it just clicked for me when i was first writing lyrical music in high school and before that on the piano it all been like just kind of I guess you might call it neoclassical, a lot of improvisational chord structure on the left hand, melodies on the right, no lyrics, just kind of, um, right. I guess, more melodic explorations, you know, in retrospect, it was discovering, um, you know, those melodies in, in the keyboard. But uh, most of the lyric, lyrical writing that I do is still on guitar, although I do still write on piano. And I'd like to get, you know, some of that actually is because I, I haven't had a piano set up in my home for a while. I moved a lot the last 10 years and right. now I'm kind of settled in a place and I've been thinking about moving a piano in. And, and I think if that happens, I'll probably write some more on piano. But uh, pretty much for me, it, you know, you, you pick up an instrument that you're comfortable with, whatever that instrument may be. And you start, if it's a corded instrument, like a piano or guitar, you start feeling through chords. And sometimes, you know, your hands move to a position intuitively that you didn't intend to, and you, and you hear a change. And in, inherent in that chord change are a series of melodic options. And those melodies, I mean, like speaking about this in a cerebral way kind of almost doesn't even make sense because it's, it's a very intuitive kind of mashed up process. But your ear responds to chord changes and intuits melodies. 
although there are lots of different options for melodic choice depending on what the, the chord change is, I think that you hone in on the ones, the chords and the melodies that that feel most like you're feeling in that moment of your life. If you're feeling mel melancholy, you're, you're going to be drawn to certain chords and melodies. If you're feeling joyous, you're going to be drawn to certain chords and melodies and rhythms and tempos and cadence. Yeah. So it's kind of a, for me anyway, my process is, I guess, more meditative trying to discover where, you know, where I'm at and recenter. And then out of that series of chords, and usually for me, when it's starting out, you know, playing chords, I'm sort of humming over the chords, kind of amorphously, kind of searching for the melody that feels right. And out of that relationship between the melody and the chord structure is kind of a, a sentiment. And then uh, it becomes a process of searching your memories for experiences that, that match that feeling. And so that's how I, I write, you know, in terms of the narrative style that I write. Right. But, it, you know, it, sometimes it happens that a, a phrase pops in your head and then you build chords and melodies around that phrase. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, like, you know, I was saying sort of facetiously, sometimes lately I've, I've been doing a lot of driving. And so you'll come up with ideas on the road and kind of take a quick note and come back to it later. You know, it can happen a number of different ways. But my preferred way to write is to, is to kind of let the in instrument speak to that moment and then build the, the melody and the narrative off of that. Do you ever try to write, I guess, story songs about people or people's experiences that you've heard on the road as a ta tacking onto that question? And has have people, if you've written that sort of song, have people thought that, that you were trying to do personal experience when it's uh, the furthest from it? Yeah, I've, I've had that before. I guess there's one song off an album we did a couple years ago called Time Will Take You. It's called Back to the Farm, Life is Good, which was about a conversation I had with a guy that he had graduated college and didn't know what to do next. He was in kind of the middle of the recession. And he signed up for a program to volunteer on a on an organic farm in North Carolina. He was from Seattle. It was a, a big change of pace, you know, for him. He had no farm experience. He was a city city boy. And so I was asking him about it, expecting him to feel kind of have ambivalent feelings about about it and he was he was just so excited about the work he was doing that uh, I wrote this song about what he what he shared with me living on the farm and and sometimes people think like you know I must live out in the sticks somewhere because I wrote that song but it was actually just a uh, kind of an appropriation of of something that that he had shared with me and and that happens I mean a lot of my songs are narrative but you know not not all of them are I, I wrote a song that we never recorded but it was after Elisa and I went to do a tour in the UK and Ireland, and I learned about this Welsh boxer, uh, a banterweight boxer that they called the Matchstick Man. He was actually killed during a fight, and uh, I wrote a, a story song about him. I guess some characters just jump out at you, and you just feel a need, I guess a need to... I guess if there's something that feels universal about you know, a, a narrative, whether it's your own narrative or someone else's, you want to you want to capture it in some way, uh, you know. And as a songwriter, I think you're always searching your life and sh searching, you know, even maybe the lives of others for those moments of life that that distill down into something that feels universal and human and echoes something deeper, you know, than than the individual themselves. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, even though you don't, even though you're not a farmer, you're not a farmer, you don't live out in the sticks, you still had a connection to that story and connection to this person. Yeah, and I've, I've thought a lot about that. I thought, well, what, what was that connection? 
And I think it's that as human beings, we spend a lot of our evolutionary history as farmers and herders. Hmm. And there's something to living with the rhythm of Mother Nature. There's something to putting the tools in the shed after the harvest and, and letting that, you know, letting them rest yeah. through the winter and letting your body and your spirit rest. Maybe trading your plow for a guitar, you know, and sit by the fire and write music, play music. I mean, that's a lot of the place of music in society throughout history was wintertime when the harvest was in, right. keeping yourself occupied, but also celebrating, you know, celebrating the, the fruits of all that labor. So there are all these themes in, in, I guess, agrarian life that sort of echoed out of that conversation. And, and I thought, I want to grab hold of this, you know, I want to, I want to do something with this. All right, well, tell us about a time you were really happy with how one of your songs came out, whether it was a quick one that came to you immediately just as a burst of inspiration or maybe something that you had been struggling with for a long time and then finally kind of resolved. Well, I guess uh, I'll give two examples. One is on the new record radio, there was a song, there's a song on there called A Song to the Night. It came about, I guess I was thinking about the nature of time and this life and all the things that are fleeting about that and all the things that were, were powerless, you know, in, in regard to life and mortality. And, and at the same moment, I was thinking about all, all the magic and beauty that surrounds us every day that, that is, you know, miraculous. But we, we start to see it as mundane because it's all around and it's abundant, you know. And when, when miracles are abundant, they start to seem mundane, but they're still miracles nonetheless. And so for whatever reason, that song just kind of spilled out on the page as you know, the, the most fun ones to write are the ones that write themselves that you you don't give any thought to, and and it it feels like you're just sort of grabbed by the collar, you know, and you're just you know sometimes you can even see it in the the pen strokes they get manic, you know, and next thing you know you have this song, and then the next thing is to understand what it means, you know, and and your relationship to it because sometimes it's it feels like it's uh, being written by somebody else even. But that's a very very fulfilling uh, experience, ex exhilarating experience. Um, you get kind of high off it, you know, and, and you're always kind of chasing that high. But at the same time, one of my favorite songs that I've written is on an album called Time Will Take You. It's called The First Cold Day of Fall. That song was a rewrite. It was a, a song that I originally wrote. I started on guitar and I had a completely different set of lyrics, and it felt it felt weak. It felt like I was trying to write a song. And I think the worst thing that you can do, I mean, I don't know. I think if you ever find yourself with writer's block, in my opinion, the best things to do are to keep writing, even if you don't like what you're writing, right? and to refrain from being self-critical insofar as that's possible for you, and also not to try. Don't try to write, you know, because trying carries the weight of sort of this cerebral judge that lives in your head that is good and useful for editing, but it's not useful for the act of writing. Oh, not at all. <laughs> and so when I wrote this song originally, I don't even remember what the original version was called, but I could hear that cerebral judge making itself known and, and, and I, it just didn't feel it didn't feel real to me. And so I, I took a step away for a few weeks and then I moved the chord progression over to piano and I wrote this kind of rolling piano line. And for some reason that unlocked something. And I realized that it was a different memory 
that needed to live with that melody and that chord progression. And once that happened, it wrote very quickly. But I guess, you know, it was, it was like I, I got inside the, the chord structure and the melody. I felt like I was trying to steer it, you know, where it needed to go, but I, I just needed to allow that judge to fade into the background and, and allow the, the song to speak what it needed to, to speak and say what it needed to say on its own. And that can be a difficult thing. And, and knowing the hardest part, I think, about art is knowing when there's something there to dig deeper for if it doesn't if it's not coming out together easily knowing when to keep fighting for what is there you know what what is trying to be there but not isn't complete yet right. and knowing when it's just the song is maybe not on the right track for you and knowing when to keep going and knowing when to stop and that can be a, a challenging thing and that's where that judge and that editor is useful you know right in evaluating what you've already written and saying this is close, you know, I need a, a stronger verse here. I need a stronger line here. Or like this rhyme is weak or even simple things like phrasing. Sometimes the cadence of a line can help it to speak, you know, more strongly. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you, you, you end up adding too many words. Right. You know, sometimes, you know, you need to, uh, to let certain words breathe out more. And so uh, all that stuff, you know, it, it occupies a different part of your brain than the, the songwriting side itself. And if you're doing a lot of editing and you're doing a lot of sort of self-critiquing and rewriting, then you can get over sort of conscious of yourself, hyper self-aware. And I think that that is what, where writer's block comes from. Right. And finding a way to balance that part of your brain and, and be able to pull out that tool at will and be able to put it down at will too. That, and I think that that's an exercise. The more that I'm writing, the more I feel I can fluidly move between those modes without interrupting either one. But if I've been traveling a lot, I haven't been writing as much, sometimes I feel like I got to, just like any exercise, I got to re-strengthen those pathways. Sometimes it even feels like hacking through the brush with a machete, you know, be like, there used to be a trail here, you know, and you, you got to reestablish that trail. <laughs> that's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. Just it's it's training. It is, yeah. You know, it's to us, just like anything else. Yeah, you know, and sometimes you can walk out the door and run three miles, six miles, and sometimes if you haven't been doing it, you realize it's going to be a little bit of work getting back. I think the important thing is to not give up. Right. It's to it's to remember that you ran those distances before. Yeah. You know that you wrote those songs before. And that if you're a songwriter, you're always going to be a songwriter. And no amount of writer's block can steal that identity from you. You always have it in you. And throughout your life, even if you think that you're standing still, you're always moving forward. And your identity is evolving. And the new songs are born out of the evolution of your identity. And as you grow into new people, those people will want to speak out in new songs. That that's the nature of a songwriter is as you evolve as a human being, your music and your songs evolve. If you keep that relationship in tandem, any amount of writer's block is just a break. And sometimes you do need a break. Right. I don't think, if I was manically writing, like I, like I wrote that song I mentioned, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would go insane. And so I think it's good that we have variety in life, and, and some of that variety is recuperating is having experiences going out into the world, speaking to people, absorbing things, observing and distilling experiences. And it's, it's, all, it's all part of the process. You're always writing. If you're living and you're a songwriter, you're always writing. Man, this is basically the reason why I wanted to start this podcast, to have conversations like this. <laughs> it's just inspiring to, to hear your, uh, 
you know, your mentality towards this. Well, some of this is stuff that I tell myself too, man. (laughs) These are things that I've, I guess I've come to think in the sort of the dark hours of my own writer's block and times when I didn't feel inspired. Sometimes you just have to remind yourself of who you are and you'll find your way, you know, you'll find your way out of that. Cool. As a kind of an added uh, added question to the uh, getting the songs together or uh, writing faster or slow or whatnot, when it comes to song structure, have you ever had any songs that have only the verses were up to snuff or just you had a really great chorus but you couldn't write a verse around it but then it kind of you managed to morph it into something else yeah for sure i mean i feel a certain compulsion and when i start a song if i feel that it, it has something to speak I, I have a certain compulsion to finish it because if i don't finish it it falls into the valley of lost bits and pieces that is all the shoeboxes and you know iphone notes and the, the modern era and all the little pieces that never got finished and therefore never got anchored in reality. I feel like when you finish a song from beginning to end, it is born. It becomes something in the world. Whether you record it on an album or not, it's there. And you can play it from beginning to end and you can reconnect with that moment. But sometimes it doesn't touch the ground. Sometimes it's a, a, you know, like you say, a verse floating in the abyss or just a chorus line. And sometimes I feel like I feel the weight of that work too. You know, I want to go back into those scattered kind of fluttering bits and pieces and, and turn them into something. There was a quote I heard one time, I think it was The Edge saying to Bono, and I'm not the hugest U2 fan, but I thought it was a brilliant quote. He, he called uh, Bono the uh, patron saint of lost songs <laughs> because he wanted to do something with everything creative that they ever came up with. And okay. I, I could identify with that, that desire to anchor down these fragmented pieces, you know. But at the same time, likely that won't happen. Right. There are some uh, bits of inspiration that were just a flash, like light through a prism. And then there are some that you get to hold on to for longer and you get to absorb and turn into something more concrete, more substantial, like a song. So as you said before, you kind of start humming. Well, once you kind of figured out a chord progression, you start humming things down to find a melody. So I'm assuming the melody comes a little bit before the lyrics and then they kind of form themselves a little bit. But what's your method for writing lyrics once this sort of structure of the song is in place? I've done it both ways. I've written lyrics first and and worked backwards. I guess the reason it's been easier for me to write lyrics to melodies and chords that are already kind of percolating is, is a lot of my vocal style is more rhythmic than it is melodic and some of that just comes from the vocal cords that god put in my throat you know i might i might not have the range that some people have or the the timbre that some people have and so i've i've gotten into people like bob dylan who also uses more of a a rhythmic vocal delivery but when you're dealing with the rhythm of words more than you are even the melody it's helpful to have that base structure of the song's rhythm and the the rhythm of the chord changes and the the rhythm of your right hand kind of moving in a direction so that you can fit those stressed and unstressed syllables into that matrix. And again, I'm speaking like in a cerebral way about this, but the process is not obviously cerebral. You can't do all the math as you're writing. It's just you (laughs) you intuitively do it, you know. Right. Uh, You feel it, you know. But for lyrics, I, I... in the style that I write, which is more narrative, folk singer-songwriter or Americana, I'm generally looking for an experience that matches the mood. And then you, then I just, you know, I want to tell tell the story. Like there was a, 
One of the first songs that really grabbed me and made me want to be a songwriter was my dad always listened to Dylan when I was a kid. And I remember certain songs would kind of resonate like Mr. Tambourine Man. You know, if you're a child and you hear a song about a tambourine man, you have certain kind of cartoonish images that come to mind about that guy. <laughs> yeah. Like Mr. Bojangles, you know, which he might have been, you know, mimicking her. But um, other songs like uh, Subterranean Homesick Blues, if you're seven years old, it's just going to blow by your ears, you know, and you're going to be like, what was that? Right. So Dylan, there were a couple songs that really stood out and a couple songs that were over my head at the time. But I, I bought Free Wheel and Bob Dylan when I was uh, 17. Uh, it was on sale at the record store I was at. And I remembered my dad I had always been a Dylan fan. And I put it in the my car stereo and was driving home. The second track on that album, Girl from North Country, uh, it's still to this day, it's it's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. And the reason I think it's beautiful is because here you have Bob Dylan, who I sort of liken to the Wizard of Oz. Okay. The Wizard of Oz is a construction. Yeah. And Bob Dylan, the moniker Bob Dylan is a construction. And he built up this story about himself to be larger than life. And, you know, the glasses and the black leather jackets and the, the endless cigarette smoking and the, <laughs> the beat, beatnik jive and... You know, saying that he grew up uh, hopping the rails, you know, through the South. It was all that Wizard of Oz smoke, you know. Yeah. But there's a there's a little man behind all those levers and strings <laughs> who's a real person, you know, real flesh and blood and blood back there. And I felt like that song just struck to the heart of Robert Zimmerman in Hibby, Minnesota, falling in love with some miner's daughter that he might never see again. And so he sends the song as a letter back. And you don't even know... You don't know where she is. He doesn't know where she is. But it's this sweet, sincere, beautiful message. And I thought, I get that. I feel that. I'm feeling I'm feeling his emotions, but they're my emotions, you know. But uh, that and then, you know, there, he has another song. It, it takes a lot to, to laugh. It takes a train to cry. And I really always love that that song. is like a three verse, almost like a three acts of a play, you know, three scenes. Each verse was like a scene. So there are different ways of structuring songs. But I guess I, I just... I became attracted to studying the way that he put songs together and, and what, if something really worked for me, you know, as a listener, what was it that made it work so well? And then I got, you know, I dug into all my favorites, Paul Simon, John Lennon, Neil Young, you know, modern folks like Ryan Adams and uh, Ray LaMontagne and Patty Griffin, Joni Mitchell, and just trying to figure out now what is it? that is so resonant, yeah. what is so luminous about these people that, that we crawl inside their experiences so easy that we can wear their skin so easily and that it makes us feel our own emotions. So that's what you're trying to do, man. It's, it's a high bar to set for yourself. And it's humbling because there are times when I listen to a great John Lennon song and I want to sell my guitar. But I think that's <laughs> good because, you know, Bob Dylan said, he's like, whatever you do, strive to be the best at your craft. And that could sound arrogant, but it's also it's also motivation to never stop learning and to never stop growing. And, and I think that as an artist, if you're going to be an artist long term, you know, sometimes people have said to me, like, all right, you put your eighth studio album out. How do you keep finding things to say or, you know, how do you how do you keep relevant? How do you not be a one hit wonder? And, mm -hmm. and the key, I think, is to never stop learning, never stop growing, never stop reaching for your heroes. And you'll never reach your heroes because they are who they are by virtue of being effective at communicating themselves to the world. But you hope in reaching for them that you become more and more effective in communicating yourself to the world. I guess that's the ego side of it in some ways. But 
the community side is you hope that what you create is useful to others. Right. I mean, that's the that's the relatableness again is is you know, you try to sing songs that are your experiences, but at the same time you're hoping that people will see themselves in him. Yeah, and and uh, in the same way you sort of get high on the rush of writing the new song, you can get high on the emotion of someone crawling inside the song while you're performing it. If you can you can feel the presence of other people in the song when you perform. And that's what drives performers to keep performing is you get in front of an audience and you have a room full of people, whether it's a big audience or a small audience. Sometimes it works better with a small audience. Hmm. And you feel those people crawl inside the song and it, it expands. The parameters of that song that you wrote start to push out to fit all these people in there. And the song is different than the next time you play it. It grows and it grows in dimension and scope to accommodate those people. Those people leave something in there. And you do it both because it feels good to do it. And then you also continue to do it because people might tell you that it, it means something to them Right. that you do it. I think one of the best feelings in the world is when somebody comes up to you and tells you like how much they liked one of your songs. Yeah. Because it's just this amazing feeling of like I struck a chord in somebody's emotional state. Nice use of this a struck a chord. That's a <laughs> nice. It's like a pun, but it's too poetic to be a pun. <laughs> but that is what you're I mean, it's like, why do we use that phrase? Oh, it struck a chord in me. Right. Yeah. We use that phrase because the chord in harmony is a, a metaphor for something that resonates in us. It resonates in our spirit. So we're talking about spiritual harmony. In this modern world, there's a lot of spiritual dissonance. <laughs> yeah, very true. Technology, for all its convenience, is riddled with spiritual dissonance. Where do we find spiritual harmony? And we need to remember to go to those places. We need to remember to go to those wells that have spiritual harmony for us. Maybe that's hiking in the woods. Maybe that's taking a trip out to uh, an organic farm and petting a sheep. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's reconnecting with something that has spiritual resonance and, and harmony. And, and music can do that too. To get there though, we need to bring a, a state of mindfulness. And one thing that I, that I worry about is that people are losing to some degree the ability to get into a state of mindfulness. Our, our minds are being filled more and more with more and more chaotic thoughts. And music is a safe place. It's a place for you to reduce your, your number of thoughts and to cleanse your mind and to feel your spirit resonate. But with so many people addicted to iPhones, do we allow ourselves the time to become mindful? And that's, you know, that's, that's a question. It's a question for us and our, our craft. And our craft in some ways is like trying to be the Pied Piper to draw people into mindfulness. Maybe catch them by surprise with mindfulness, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that can be challenging, yeah. especially in a bar with uh, the NFL on or something. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. that's. You're always competing with what sports are on. Yeah, and, and, and there are some, I mean, it's like why do people connect with sports? In some ways, like, you know, like I, I heard a conversation recently Baseball has always been our national pastime, but why is now football supplanting baseball? Less and less people are sort of knowledgeable or interested in, in their baseball teams, but the NFL is taking off. And it, it's because the NFL reflects where we're, we're going as a society. We're becoming more and more competitive, more ruthless, in some ways more violent. And it's, it's like a very active sport, you know. Baseball is very pastoral, and there are, 
a baseball game could go on for eternity. In some ways, there's something in the fact that you have exactly 27 outs, you know, to complete a game and you have no time limit and you have these base runners running around the pitcher like planets around the sun and all these sort of cosmological aspects of baseball. And as you stare out over this pastoral green field in the middle of a city, it's a very different mindset than football. And I think the reason why we're moving from one to the other is because the other reflects elements of our society better than, you know, football does better than baseball now. The question is, are we comfortable with that? You know, and so when we're talking about a songwriter in a bar up against a football game, and you see people's heads turn in the football game, you get this instant gratification from constant action and punishing hits and competition and vengeance and ruthlessness, you know? And I, I say this as a, a fan of the Seattle Seahawks, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, the songwriter is trying to accomplish something very different than the football game is. There are things that music can do for us as a society to help, help us to heal from all that, those punishing blows, you know, that we take during the work week. I think it just takes people remembering that, you know. Cool. I wanted to change to a little bit of maybe sort of sort of recommendations and such. Can you recommend a book to our listeners that you've read about songwriting or music in general? And to be honest, it never has to be tied to a specific type of book because I tend to get inspiration from a lot of different types of books that will then directly inspire me musically or, or in my songwriting or in my business or whatever. Is there anything that you've been reading lately that has inspired you in some way that you think people should check out? Well, to be honest, I've never read a, a book about songwriting. I've always written songs sort of... Uh, my study of songwriting is listening to songwriters who I love and trying to learn their moves and trying to think about why they're effective. But I do read a lot of literature as a way of trying to absorb different writers' tone. One that, uh, writer that I got really obsessed with last winter is named Raymond Carver. He's from Washington State, but he lived all over Washington, Oregon, Northern California. He died in Port Angeles, Washington. He is a masterful short story writer. And a lot of it is the tone that he's able to stitch through his narratives. It's a shadowy tone and it's very beautiful. And he can write a story that has moments of tension, almost like an Albert Alfred Hitchcock movie, but nothing might happen. And that's kind of similar to Hitchcock too. Hitchcock was a master of creating tension sometimes when there was no danger. You know, in the same way that you, you know, listen to different songwriters to sort of try to understand their, their moves, their movements better, you might read literature to try to understand how do they use the English language to create these emotions. There's no music, you know, there's no chords, there's no melodies. You can lean very heavily on chord and melody to try to conjure emotion, but the words along with the chords and melody taken together, that trifecta is what makes a really masterful song. And so if I want to try to get better at that third piece, you know, lyric writing, I want to study masters of the English language. So Raymond Carver, James Joyce, I got the complete short stories of Anton Chekhov. I've been reading a lot of, um, and of course, Chekhov is Russian, so I got a translation. But uh, I guess I've been reading a lot of short stories lately. I used to read more poetry, but I like short stories in terms of trying to fuel up for lyric because they use a lot of poetic device because a short story, it doesn't have the room to sprawl out like a novel does. And so they have to use poetic device to communicate more around that character 
or that scene because they have a limited number of words, a limited number of pages to do that. But unlike a poem, they're still very narrative driven. It's still very character driven. In my songs, I want to be character driven and narrative driven as well as you use poetic device. For me, that's been a ticket lately. I, I've been settling into, for a while I got into reading epic novels. You know, I felt like I should read War and Peace. And there's a writer named Roberto Bolaño, the Chilean writer that spent most of his time in Mexico City. He, he had a series of novels I read. He had an epic called 2666. But I keep coming back to short stories because I feel like in terms of the, as a songwriter, there's something there for me, I guess, that connects with what I want to do with my songs. Even if I only have three verses and a chorus or two verses, a chorus and a bridge to communicate the story, I want to move through the, the narrative in a way that reflects the way that great narrative writers move through narrative. And so I guess that's, that's what I've been reading. Cool. Yeah, I can relate to that. Having, uh, being able to, basically the short story form is so effective and especially when you compare it to songwriting because you want to be able to tell a story through a song. Whether, however, way, however vague that song might be, you're still trying to convey a story to a certain extent. Yeah, poetry is like a very expensive wine or like a, a very expensive single malt scotch, you know. You take a small sip and you have this burst of experiences, succession of, of experiences. And short story writing is kind of like craft beer, you know. It's like, it's a little bit more meat and potatoes, but you still have that poetic nuance lingering in the background. It's in, informing the whole experience. Right. I don't know, I, I feel like poetry has to be so distilled because it doesn't have anything else to inform it. You don't have melody, rhythm, or, or chords, you know. But the, the narrative style of, sh of short story writing, to me, it just fits along the backbone of the musical structure in a way that it's kind of straddles those two worlds, honestly. It's, it's somewhere between poetry and uh, short story, uh, character-driven uh, narrative writing. I should start reading more poetry. That's what I took from that, that little segment. Because <laughs> I, I got to get back into my uh, poetry reading. Because I, I used to be, I used to love reading, reading poetry, but uh, I haven't as much lately. All right. I got a couple more questions here before uh, we'll be hitting the hour mark here in a little bit. So uh, <laughs> I think we've covered some really cool topics, and you are actually a very incredibly inspiring person to talk to, to be honest. Thanks, man. I appreciate that very much. So one of the two last questions here is the typical, um, obviously, if people want to know more about you and find your music and whatnot, uh, where should they go? Where do you want to direct them to? We're parked in the World Wide Web and all the usual places. We have a website at ianmcferrin.com. We have songs on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, a bunch of other places, I guess. Yeah. But if you, if you Google my name, ianmcferrin.com, you'll, you'll find some pathways to, to music and information about us. All right, well, lastly, I wanted to feature one of your songs at the end of the podcast. Would you like to pick a specific song and go through what the writing process for that was like or what the song is about? Basically, if you were to introduce it on stage, what would you say? Well, yeah, I guess if you had the new album Radio, I'd probably say River of Time, which is ninth track on there. We live across the street from a, a marshland. There's a little park. It's a small lake. And... Uh, Every winter, this red-tailed hawk comes, and, and there's like an old birch tree, gnarled birch tree. It, it often perches on top of him, assuming, because he has a good vantage point to look down and see rodents or whatever. But I would watch this hawk, and he would take off in flight, and they're very, very uh, elegant creatures when they're, when they're flying. And Elisa said, uh, you know, we should name this hawk. We see him every winter, and, you know, 
almost like a, a wild pet or something. <laughs> right. And so I said, uh, let's call him Francis after the Pope. And she was like, she's like, what? You know, <laughs> but I was, I was thinking about the way that nature, I think at its best, spirituality, what we seek for spirituality is uh, something that reflects a natural order that has a moral truth to it in the same way that science is reaching for truth in, in, in the natural order of things. The hawk, you know, obviously is very elegantly uh, kind of synchronistic with his surroundings. Um, and that maybe isn't a conscious thing. It's an intuitive thing, but he is nonetheless. And I was thinking about the Pope, you know, and these comments that he has he's been making that have been very resonant with you know non-catholics and even non-christians and why was it that that he was so resonant and to me it was because he was saying things that reflected moral truth there are elements of moral truth and so he was synchronistic with that moral truth in a way that you know was similar to the hawk being synchronistic with the natural order of things and so i wrote this song Semi from perspective of my memories and uh, maybe intuiting the Pope's memories and perspectives, because before he was the Pope, he was a man as well, and kind of seen through the eyes of this hawk who doesn't try to fit in and doesn't do anything to try to be anything other than what he is. And I guess that the whole uh, bridge section is about what would it feel like to be unchained and to walk on the wind, both physically, like the, like the bird, but also spiritually. And I guess at some point, you hope that we get to take that flight. You know. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Ian. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, it's been fun for me, too. Thanks so much for having me. I will right, we'll end it with River of Time. Uh, thanks for listening. Outside of my window He don't worry He just goes where the wind blows in me Ain't never tried to fit in Summer grass And the rolling field This photograph Just don't catch the way it feels Cause it won't stand still all the colors change and the light fades all over again River of time I'm just floating like a leaf on a stream Close my eyes See the white clouds and the blue skies Wishing that I knew what it means You said life is like a to a dream, but what is dreaming? Young girl in a white church dress Laying out that red and white picnic spread Next to me, where does it run to When a moment disappears Sky.
unchained Had a walk on the wind I wanna know where it comes from Where it goes to How to disappear and come back again I wanna know how it feels To be unchained How to walk on the wind I wanna know where it comes from Where it goes to How to disappear and come back again On a river of time I'm just floating like a leaf on the stream Close my eyes See the white clouds and the blue skies Wishing that I knew what it means You said life is like a waltz to a dream But what is dreaming?